In John 6, Jesus says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? What can we learn this Lent from looking at the Apostle Judas? and this is the Catholic Podcast. I'm joined today by Joe Heschmeyer, who's author of Shameless Popery and who works at Holy Family School of Faith. So welcome, Joe. Thanks, Chloe. We're digging into part two of our Lenten series. And in our previous episode, we looked at the Blessed Virgin Mary and how she stands fast when the other apostles flee. So we're taking a complete 180 from that. We're talking about about as far as you can get from Mary, which is Judas. Yep. So what do we want listeners to take away from today's podcast episode? Three things. Number one. Judas reminds us that priests are sinners. I mean, Judas is a priest. Right. And so we're reminded further that the true church includes some truly wicked people. Practically, this means that we should take priests off of pedestals, see them as human, and avoid clericalistic assumptions about them. Exactly. Two, shame isn't enough. You're going to feel bad about your sins sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's not enough. That's not contrition. The question is... What are you going to do when you feel those feelings of shame? So you have two options. We can either turn towards Christ and his incredible strength, or we can rely on our own strength. And we've seen that that doesn't really work out very well. Exactly. Number three, Jesus loves us even when we're horrible sinners. And we've seen that Jesus calls Judas, the man who betrays him, a friend. And if Christ can call Judas a friend, he can see us as friends as well. Right. If he can hold out mercy, even towards Judas... Imagine what he's willing to offer you. Part one, Judas Priest. Bad priests, bishops, cardinals, and even popes have been a stumbling block in the history of the Catholic Church, especially when it comes to the Reformation. And I studied history in college, and it didn't take very many like sessions of a history class for it to turn to, like, here's where the Catholic Church fell apart in the 1500s. Can you tell us a little bit about the earliest reformers, and what they thought about the clergy who weren't living out their vocations to the fullest or who were abusing that power, and how Judas ties into that conversation. Yeah, so there was this view that bad priests weren't true priests because they weren't truly members of the church. Mm-hmm. And if you're familiar with early church history, this is related in some ways to the Donatist controversy. Mm-hmm. Um, Donatism back in the era of Augustine, so we're looking at the 4th century here into the 5th century, uh, was a belief that, it, so I'll give you a little bit of background to it, there had been a terrible persecution of the church, and in that persecution, um, some of the Catholic bishops and priests had fallen away mm-hmm. and had renounced the faith. Some of them had turned over holy objects to be destroyed by the Romans, and it was a, a huge scandal in the early church. Um, And so there arose this movement called Donatism that argued that these people who were the so-called lapsi, meaning like the lapsed uh, clergy, they weren't truly members of the church. And so they couldn't, you couldn't be a bishop if you'd collaborated with the Romans. Mm -hmm. Very understandable position, but it creates a certain problem, which is that you never know if you're even at mass. Because what if the priest is in a state of mortal sin? What if he's quietly lost his faith? Mm -hmm. Um, what appears to be a mass just maybe isn't. And and so it's St. Augustine who talks about how, I mean, others as well, but St. Augustine is the one we, we most famously remember. Mm-hmm. He talks about the power of the sacraments and that the way they work doesn't depend on the personal holiness of, of the sacramental minister. Like the priest's holiness doesn't make the sacrament valid or invalid. 
Because no one is actually holy enough other than Jesus Christ right. to institute the Last Supper. Right. So it's by Christ's holiness and not the priest's that the sacraments work. So this means that like, even if a priest is in the state of mortal sin, if you go to the Mass, Jesus is still present. He's still there in the Eucharist. And you don't have to worry about doing a background check on all the priests that you go to and seeing where they're at in their spiritual lives. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, a priest in mortal sin, that's a shame for him. Mm-hmm. And it might impact how open he is to whatever movements of the Holy Spirit would have given him a better homily or, you know, yeah. Who, yeah. who knows. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but it isn't relevant for purposes of validity. You don't have to worry that it's not really the Mass. So the early reformers or the proto-reformers, Wycliffe and Huss, the guys who come right before Martin Luther, mm-hmm. they articulate a vision of the church in which bad clergy and bad popes are not members of the true church because the true church only consists of the saints. And so Judas is, of course, really relevant for this. Yeah, yeah. Because if they're right, it means Judas was never really a part of the church. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a quote from Wycliffe. It's originally in Middle English, but I've, I've done my best to uh, to put it... Make it easier to listen to. <laughs> right. You don't want to hear me try. <laughs> but he says, And as Judas was a thief and no member of Christ, no part of Holy Church, though he ministered the order of bishop, but was a devil of hell, as Christ saith in the gospel. So if these worldly clerics shall be damned for here cursed sins, as coveting, hypocrisy, simony, and despair, as Judas was. They be fiends of hell, and no Christian men, nor members of Christ, nor part of Holy Church. So he's very clearly saying Judas, not in the church. Yeah. Even though he was an apostle. Right, and called by Christ. Yes, handpicked by yeah. Christ. And there's... A fascinating verse that just sort of encapsulates this whole Mm -hmm. dynamic. In John 6, at the very end, uh, Jesus says in verse 70, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? And he's referring to Judas there. And Wycliffe is clearly aware of that verse. He's he's referencing it. But Jesus is saying, I chose you, you're the Mm twelve. And you don't have to look very far for example in first corinthians to find that apostles are part of the church you can't have an apostle without the church it doesn't make any sense right and this is too like almost a prideful statement believing that you know if you're going to be a leader of the church you have to be perfect you have to be a saint then what does that say for like the reformers themselves like they're not completely sinless themselves they make mistakes they're human yeah so it's it is sort of a presupposition that you can only have a valid church if the pastor is is totally holy. And so it, it puts an unnecessary emphasis on what we can know about the pastor's personal holiness. So mm-hmm. I, I think all of that is just a, it's a very negative turn. Yeah. And so Judas really is, in a lot of ways, uh, the answer to that. If Judas is an apostle, and if apostles are part of the church, then Wycliffe and the subsequent reformers are wrong about what the church looks like. Mm-hmm. The church isn't just a collection of only saints. It's also, I mean, it really is a field hospital for sinners. Yeah, yeah. And some of those sinners may not ultimately be saved. Mm-hmm. And Christ is even very clear about that. So remember the parable of the wheat and the weeds? Yeah. He talks about planting wheat and weeds springing up. And that's in Matthew 13. And he's talking about the kingdom. So the kingdom is going to consist of both wheat and weeds. Right. And so when 
the workers come along and say, should we pull up the weeds? Mm -hmm. He says, no, because you might pull up some wheat along with them. Yeah. If you try to purify the church of everyone you think isn't going to go to heaven, Mm -hmm. chances are you're going to be damning some saints. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And so anytime you get someone promising uh, a church, like the one Wycliffe is describing, Mm -hmm. a church of only the saints, you can be sure that it's not the church of Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't include sinners and he comes to save the sinners. Yeah. So for some of us, this is a reality that's very real. We have had lives affected by priests who who aren't living up to what it means to be a priest, who aren't living their vocation to the fullest. What are practical tips that we can have as lay people to heal from wounds, but also to build trust back with the church um, after being wounded? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I wish I had some easy... <laughs> Perfect answer. <laughs> right. Exactly. It doesn't admit of an easy path yeah. answer. And I think it's worth recognizing uh, the severity of those wounds. Mm-hmm. Now, one part of me just kind of coldly analytically wants to say... You wouldn't stop believing in gravity because you had a jerk as a science teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And so the truth of the faith in that sense doesn't depend on the holiness of, of the ones proclaiming it. Mm-hmm. Or the ones through whom you were exposed to the faith. But that answer doesn't really cut it in a way. Yeah. Because Catholicism is supposed to be life-changing. And so if someone comes along preaching it and not letting their own life be changed by it, it's mm-hmm. genuinely scandalous. Mm-hmm. Pope Benedict pointed out that the greatest witness that the church has in every age is her saints. And so the flip side of that is it means if we're not saints, it's the greatest disservice we can do to the church. Yeah. Yeah. I think being aware of that is is critical, both in understanding why the clerical abuse scandal hurts so much Mm -hmm. and why bad priests are such a scandal, Mm -hmm. but also in understanding why our own sin does a tremendous amount of damage. Yeah. Even if we don't think it does, we don't think it ought to. And, you know, we might say things like, well, I'm not holding myself up as a saint. Yeah. But if people know you as a Catholic and know you're a bad Catholic Mm -hmm. and all the Catholics they know are like you, they're going to give up on the Catholic Church without really investigating it. Because the gospel should be life-changing, should be transformative. And if our lives don't show that, who's going to listen? I think being aware of our own sinfulness Mm -hmm. and taking it... to heart in that sense that just as we might have been scandalized by something this witness of the gospel did that was contrary to their witness Mm -hmm. um, our own sinfulness can lead to it and so we should forgive others as we want to be forgiven in that sense right not saying it's not a serious problem Mm -hmm. but recognizing that in some way we might also uh, have some serious sin that we need to to account for I think, too, in terms of, like, practicalness when it comes to parish life and and going to a parish, there is something to be said for not putting priests on an unattainable pedestal or thinking, you know, father has it all together, his life is perfect, he became a priest, etc. And then when when he's human and he says something wrong or the way he didn't intend it to come across, it's easy for them to fall off that pedestal, like, in, in a huge way, too. So stepping in and seeing them as human is a help. Yeah, I think clericalism is really related to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on an airplane once, and the guy next to me is telling me that his wife was baptized Catholic but left the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't even think I asked him why. He spent the whole trip basically. Telling you. Yeah, I <laughs> got know. a few words in edgewise, which is very <laughs> unusual for me. And he was saying that like when she was seven or eight, mm-hmm. she went to confession and told the priest she hadn't sinned. Yeah. And the priest was like, no, everybody has sinned. Yeah. Yeah. 
And apparently she was just so traumatized by this that she left the Catholic Church. And so I, I mentioned this to a priest later. And he was just dumbstruck. He was like, how long is she going to hold that grudge? Yeah. Again, like, now Jesus Christ allegedly rose from the dead and allegedly started a church. But one time a priest was mean to me when I was seven. Even though the priest was right, by the way. <laughs> yeah. That because she was a sensitive seven-year-old, she's going to yeah. let that define how she approached. I mean, it's, that's not a way to do things. Mm. On, on an emotional level, I get it. Super understandable. But I think we have to kind of check that and say, all right. We need to learn to trust. Mm-hmm. But trust in such a way that we're not putting them on a pedestal. Right. Not just priests, but anybody. Yeah, because yeah any human. If, if your acceptance of Catholicism is premised on every member of the Catholic Church being a saint, I've be got disa- bad news I'm for you. going to be disappointed. Yeah. yeah, very much so. So this comes to the question of, like, why do we have to recognize the God-given authority of church leaders? And that we, we've talked about this, too, of whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, and, two, whether they're holy or not. What does this mean for the ramifications of church authority as a whole? Yeah, think about the Holy Family. Mm-hmm. So there are three members of the Holy Family. There's St. Joseph, there's the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. and there's the child Jesus. Mary, as we believe, is conceived without sin and lives her entire life free of sin. Yeah. Jesus is God himself. No sinning. No messing up there. <laughs> and yet after the Annunciation, the angel appears not to Mary, mm-hmm. but to Joseph to lead the family. Yeah. And so the headship of St. Joseph isn't premised on him being holier than his wife mm-hmm. or being better qualified than his wife. Right. This is who God gave the authority to. Mm-hmm. And so even Jesus, we hear in Luke 2, submits to Joseph and Mary. God himself right. to submits to two mortals. Mm-hmm. And this sinless woman submits to her sinful husband. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the model. And that's clearly what Christianity teaches. But it's not just because the Bible told me so. It's also because the alternative is insanity. Mm-hmm. You know, you see it out there in the political realm. Yeah. Um, back in the 90s, I'm dating myself here a bit. I remember <laughs> as a kid seeing... Uh, bumper stickers Mm -hmm. that said Charleston Heston is my president Uh and it was a reference to NRA president Charleston Heston who you may know from such things as Planet of the Apes yeah yeah and so this person was just saying basically as as I understood the bumper sticker Mm -hmm. I don't like Bill Clinton so I don't recognize his authority Uh and so I'm gonna just have the NRA president as the president in my head right right I mean you see this I mean even in recent political terms the 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 phrase not my president exactly and so we've seen it now on both sides of the aisle yep and so I think wherever you come from, you can hopefully recognize it's childish, it's petulant, and mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of insane, really, mm-hmm. to say, I don't like you, so I'm going to deny that you have the authority that you, in fact, have. Like, right. if you went to work and said, I think I'm smarter than my boss, yeah. so I'm not going to obey him. Would it go over well? It wouldn't go over well. Awful. Yeah. Right. I mean, you might be job. looking for a new job right. very soon. Yeah. And so for anything in this world to run... We need to allow that there are going to be humans who are running things and humans who might be on a learning curve Mm -hmm. yeah, and might be frustratingly slow. But you know, the other thing I'd add to it is we're not so great ourselves. Yeah, good point. So I think all of us from time to time think that we're smarter than the people who are above us or Mm -hmm. in charge of us and whatever the context. But the only one telling us that we're right in that is ourself. Right. And we're not neutral judges. Very biased opinion. So... Hopefully, um, you're at least as holy as your bishop. Mm-hmm. That's a good starting point, yeah. I guess. Yeah. 
And maybe you really are holier than him. Maybe you really are smarter than him. Mm-hmm. Maybe you really would make better decisions if God had made you the bishop rather than him. Mm-hmm. But you know what? He you're didn't. Not the bishop. Right, you're not yep. the bishop. Yep. Yeah, that's a really good point. And and two, like it gets to the root. I mean, the root of all sins. We're looking at pride. Like pride says, I'm better. I mean, you pray, pray the litany of humility, and it'll give you a kick in the pants. And it's you know the others may be preferred to me that I may see myself as small. And we talked about this in, with Mary and humility and how the sin of pride just is the opposite, like the 180 of that, thinking that you're better, thinking that you know better, etc. Yeah, we have a culture in which, uh, so, okay, I was reading a newspaper mm-hmm. in St. Louis, and it was describing a particular uh, trial for, I believe it was a murder case, uh-huh. and the jury was deadlocked. And the headline said something like, is so-and-so guilty? You decide. And I thought, like, no. That's not how it works. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't get to decide that. Right. These people heard weeks of testimony and yeah. couldn't figure it out. And I'm supposed to read one article right. and know. Be an expert on it. And so that's very much mm. kind of the, you're the master of your own universe sort yep. of mentality we yeah. have in this culture. And it makes submission in any sense in the family, in the workplace, in the church, mm-hmm. extremely difficult. Yeah. Because we're told in ways big and small that we ought to be calling all the shots and making all the decisions. Mm-hmm. But heavy is the head that wears the crown. Yeah, yeah. We don't actually want that that weight, that authority. So how does this impact evangelization, especially for us lay Catholics? Yeah, I think related to this issue of clericalism is the idea that the priest is called to a separate level of holiness mm-hmm. than you and I are called to. And that's just not true. That, you know, it, it, <laughs> the great example is you go to a movie mm-hmm. and you see the priest there and you're just like, I can't believe you're at this movie. Yeah, yeah. It's like, why are you at that movie? Right, you're sitting there too. (laughs) So that signals that we sometimes, we put priests on a pedestal Mm -hmm. in a way that they don't sin, they don't have even like concupiscence, they they don't have any inclinations. And it's it's a very kind of artificial image of the priest. But the flip side to that Mm -hmm. is we don't call ourselves to the kind of holiness that we're demanding of them. Right. And so we see this play out in evangelization. Like the whole idea of evangelization becomes, well, the priest will do it. Right, or, this isn't my job. Right, not, or I can, I can bring them to the priest and mm-hmm. he'll answer all their questions mm-hmm. or whatever else. But the Catholic Church could not be clearer. Yeah. So read Lumen Gentium. This is the dogmatic constitution on the church mm-hmm. of the Second Vatican Council. Paragraphs 35 and 36. Commission every individual layperson. Yeah. And tell us that we have a responsibility to evangelize the world. Mm-hmm. So you're actually just rejecting and ignoring church teaching. Yeah. When yeah. you say, nah, I'm not going to worry about it's it. Okay. That's Father's job. Because the church enough. is saying, no, it's your job. Right. Yeah. And in fact, more so in a particular sense. Mm-hmm. Namely, that we are in the world yeah. much more than most priests are. Mm-hmm. Now, priests are in the world in some way as well. Like, they yeah. still go to the store. They still do those sort of right. things. Right, go to movies. But their nine to five is within the Catholic Church. Yeah. Yep. And so there are all sorts of interesting challenges. I mean, rare is it for a priest to have a non-Catholic co-worker. Yeah, good point. <laughs> and so, like, we have opportunities and challenges mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that they don't have. Yeah. And so it creates a, a, an opening for evangelization. But it means that, like, again, like we said in the very first episode, yep. if someone's going to evangelize your non-Catholic co-worker, it's probably going to have to be you. Yeah, because the priest isn't interacting with them unless he happens to sit next to them in the airplane. 
Right. And so we've seen how even sinful priests, which is to say priests, mm-hmm. because other right. than Christ, they're all sinful priests. Right. We've seen how they can change people's lives mm-hmm. and the transformative power. Now, part of that is because of the sacraments. Yeah. Part of it is because of holy orders. Right. But part of that is just because grace is a powerful thing mm-hmm. that works even through sinners. Mm-hmm. And we are promised that last bit as well. Yeah. Like, if we cooperate with God's grace to the best of our ability, then our own sinfulness, our own failings and everything won't obstruct God's plan. Mm-hmm. If we're, you know, trying to just lay ourselves down. Yeah. Yeah. So that we're not getting in the way. God right. will work with us. Right. And we close ourselves off to that grace when we tell ourselves the lie that, you know, I'm not holy enough or I'm not worthy enough or I don't have a place in this conversation. So Exactly. It's this idea that sinners can't evangelize. Mm-hmm. Every evangelist since Christ it's a sinner. has been a sinner. It's a right. sinner. Yep. Part two, shame. Both Judas and Peter deny Christ. What do each of their denials look like? And how do their moments of weakness play out in their lives after Christ is condemned to death? So both of their moments of weakness Mm -hmm. are remarkably similar. In both cases, they rely upon themselves. Yep. And they think they can do it alone. Mm -hmm. And, spoiler alert, they they can't. can't. We can't. Mm -hmm. And so Peter, in Luke 22, Christ says to him that Satan wants to sift all of the apostles like wheat. Yeah. It's a terrifying image of just like a sifter. Like just the kind of destruction that would involve mm-hmm. and he says i prayed for you peter that your faith may not fail and when you turn back strengthen your brethren yeah and it's this great little high moment for peter but then peter's like basically jesus don't worry about it i don't need your prayers yeah got it got under it. control <laughs> got it under control yep and of course he doesn't mm-hmm. and so he goes to the house of caiaphas with john and there he's approached three times and he denies christ mm-hmm. Now, Peter, I mean, Peter has a lot of strength. Yeah. In terms of natural strength, he really does have quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we we criticize Peter, reasonably so, yeah. for his many sins. But it's worth remembering that he made it to the house, mm-hmm. whereas 10 of the apostles didn't. But he does. He denies Christ. And then if you read in Luke 22, uh, 59 to 62, after the last of his denials... Jesus turns and looks at him. Can you, like, imagine, like, just this heart-wrenching, like, you told me this was coming, and I ignored you, and I said I didn't need you, and here I am, and I'm doing exactly what you said I'd probably fall into. Yeah, it's a fascinating line. It just says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. We're not told what kind of look it was. Right. Whether it's a look of, I told you so. (laughs) Yeah. Or hurt. Or anger. Yeah. Or mercy, or what that mm-hmm. look would have been. It's really, I think, worth yeah. going to prayer to really try to understand that look better. But we know we know what happens yeah. after he does it. It says, And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Yeah. So he has a true moment of genuine shame. But Judas also experiences shame. Yeah. In Matthew 27, uh, verse 3 to 4, we hear that when Judas, his betrayer, saw that he was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. Mm -hmm. So both of them have a moment 
where they realize that what they've done is wrong. It's the next step that's different. Peter responds to the shame by weeping, by experiencing his contrition, yeah. and by allowing himself to receive the Lord's mercy. Maybe he experiences that in some way with the look that Jesus gives him. Right. He certainly experiences that in John 21, when there's that beautiful exchange between Jesus and Peter, and when she says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Right. And so three times, mm-hmm. he's given an opportunity to affirm his love for Jesus. Yeah, to counteract the three times that he's denied him so blatantly. Right. And there's a cool thing going on in the Greek. Because the first time, he uses agape love. Do you agape me more than these? Meaning, do you love me in an unconditional way? Right. More even than the other apostles love me. Mm-hmm. And Peter responds with philia love. Like a brotherly love. Right. Which is probably what the other apostles have for Christ, too. And so he's aware now of his own weakness. He's aware even of the weakness of his love for Christ. That he doesn't love Christ as much as he needs to. Mm -hmm. And so the second time Jesus asks him, he says, do you agape me? There's no longer than more than these. Peter responds the same way. And the third time, Jesus says, do you philia me? And it's that time that Peter's hurt. Yeah. Because... He's aware that even this lesser love maybe is weak. Yeah, yeah. But he loves Jesus enough that he's willing to just kind of put it on the line. It's this kind of, Lord, I do believe, help me with my unbelief Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sort of approach, but with love. And so after each one, even after Peter acknowledges the limits of his love and his response, Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my lambs. Yep. And so Jesus is showing that he's wanting to work through Peter. And Peter's now ready to be worked through yeah, in a real way. Into it. We lose so much in the English translation. Dang it. This makes me want to go learn Greek, <laughs> which is a tough thing to undertake. But the, how much beauty there is like when you dig into the, the reality of the translation. It is. It's a beautiful idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so contrast that then with Judas. Yeah. Judas tries to just fix the problem himself. Mm-hmm. He betrays Christ for 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of a slave. He sold his master at a slave's wage. He sold the God of the universe Mm -hmm. as if he were personal property. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And his idea for how to remedy that is to give back the 30 pieces of silver. Like that'll fix it. Right, it just won't. Right, it's too far. And Judas realizes that. And so he despairs, and he hangs himself. Mm -hmm. And I think these are the two possibilities that face us when we become conscious of serious sin. Not that we're going to necessarily actually hang ourselves. Right, but there's that tendency to despair with that. Right, like there are times in your life you'll do something in which you just can't make it up. Mm -hmm. You say or do something to someone or to God that a sorry doesn't really just fix the situation you may have done lasting damage judas becomes aware he's not clear if he's even aware that he's put the son of god on the cross but he at least knows that this was an innocent man Mm -hmm. and so that's enough for him to be like oh my goodness like i've done this terrible thing but he doesn't turn back to christ he just experiences shame and shame is something that's i think all of us uh, experience from time to time. Yep. So I was recently on Timothy Putnam's podcast, Outside yeah. the Walls. And then I quoted this great quote from Aquinas mm-hmm. that 
Lack of shame occurs in the best and in the worst men through different causes. So in the best of us, it's because they lack any reason to be ashamed. Mm -hmm. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden, naked and unashamed. Right. And the worst of us, it's because they delight in the wickedness. Yeah, they don't see it as shameful. Fascinatingly, yeah. Judas experiences shame. Mm -hmm. He isn't beyond redemption at that point. Yeah. He could have been St. Judas. Mm -hmm. Despite having committed the worst. Right, right. Let me just deny Christ and sold him. But that is not, that, it's not that that keeps him from, from becoming a saint. It's his rejection of Christ's mercy. Right. Which goes back to the pride that we talked about. We're thinking like, my story's too much for Christ. To yeah. Forgive. My sin is bigger yep. than God. Right. Anytime that we talk about shame, I like bringing up Brene Brown. For those who listen to me outside this podcast, you're probably surprised that I haven't brought her up before this. <laughs> but she has this, she's a shame researcher. Her TED Talks went viral. Um, and she says, quote, shame isn't the same as guilt. Shame says, I am bad. And guilt says, I made a mistake. And guilt says, I'm sorry I made a mistake. And shame says, I'm sorry I am a mistake. So when it comes to the life of Judas, shame for his sins isn't enough. Yeah, I mean, he he does kind of conclude with just like viewing himself seemingly mm -hmm. as beyond redemption. Yeah. So I would say that there's kind of a middle ground between the two options she gives. Judas didn't make a mistake. Mm -hmm. He didn't, like, trip and fall and come into the possession of 30 pieces of silver yeah. and a betrayed master. Yeah. How did I get here? I have no idea. Right. This was a conscious action that he did, and yep. we see a deliberative process for it. But it's a mistake in the sense that he did something he knew was wrong. He did something wicked. Mm -hmm. He did something evil. And he doesn't have to be defined by his sin. But when he throws up his hands and views himself as beyond mercy, yeah. then he allows himself to be. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, like, that's his lasting legacy. Yeah, that's how we remember him. Like, even today, we're sitting here chatting about him, and that's what we're saying. So when it comes to practicalness, we're sitting, and if we're to look at our, our own spiritual interior life and do an examination of conscience, how do we choose the model of Peter instead of Judas? I would say don't be frustrated, even with repeated sin. Mm -hmm. Peter falls not once, but three times. Yeah. Yeah. And so you may find that, like, you go to confession for a particular sin, mm -hmm. and then, like, on the drive home, you fall into it again. Yep. Okay. And yeah. you may find that you're just not strong enough mm -hmm. to be able to uh, to know how to respond to it. I mean, I've fallen into this as well, how I don't want to go to confession because I know I'm going to have to go back. So why why go? Why make the effort of confessing a sin if I'm going to be back next week and it's not going to look any different and I've tried, but I keep failing? Yeah, that's the voice of despair. Yeah. Yep. Because in reality, if we really believe that the graces of the sacrament make us a little stronger, a little stronger each time. Yep. That we may be yep. even benefiting from our fall. Mm-hmm. So... Maybe, you know, you've got, say, sins of the flesh or you've got sins like gossip or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And you become aware through regularly going to confession. Mm -hmm. This is something I really am struggling with and I really don't have a grip on. Yep. It's in that powerlessness that you might become free from things like the sin of pride, which mm -hmm. is a much worse sin. Right, than gossip. Yeah, it's the root of that or all of them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these the sins of beasts 
are less bad than the sins of demons, as C.S. Lewis would put it. Yeah. So those things that you fall into that might be more associated with shame Mm -hmm. can sometimes keep you out of sins that we're maybe less ashamed of, but are actually worse. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. There's a great uh, bit of advice. This was on the blog Catholic Gentleman, and it comes from St. Maximilian Kolbe. Mm -hmm. He says, whenever you feel guilty, even if it is because you have consciously committed a sin, a serious sin, something you have kept doing many, many times, never let the devil deceive you by allowing him to discourage you. Whenever you feel guilty, this is a critical part, offer all your guilt to the Immaculate Mm. without analyzing it or examining it as something that belongs to her. This is a difficult but powerful spiritual practice. Yeah. If every time you become aware of your sinfulness, every time you become aware that you've done something wrong, you just say, Mary, I screwed up. Mm -hmm. Take this as a sign of my weakness, my brokenness, my need of a redeemer. Right. And help lead me to your son. And it's such a moment of surrender, too, because it's easy to be, well, why did I do this? Let me, like you said, let me examine it. Let me pull it apart. Let me, you know, beat myself up over it because I fell again. Dang it. Yeah, exactly. We can become trapped by just being fascinated by the evil. Yep. You know, like in an exorcism movie, Mm -hmm. it's easy to focus on the demon part where the really powerful part is the exorcist. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Like the really powerful part in this case is the fact that in confession, no matter how ugly and vile your sin is, Mm -hmm. the priest can absolve you of it like it's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It shows that it's not a fair fight between sin and God. Yeah. Yeah. There's just no battle to be had there. Mm -hmm. Part three, more than the sum of our weakness. Even when we damn ourselves, Christ continues to hold out forgiveness and friendship. How does this play out in the life of Judas? There's a beautiful scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. It's the moment of Judas's betrayal of Christ. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be a beautiful scene, given, I mean, given what I just said. <laughs> it's the betrayal of Christ. But yeah, Matthew 26, 47 to 50. Look at the way that Judas and Jesus greet one another. Now remember, Judas is in the Garden so that he can betray Jesus with a kiss. Yeah. And so he comes up to Jesus and he says, Hail, Master. It's a false, servile way. Right. Because he doesn't mean it. And it shows that he doesn't really get who Jesus is still. Yeah, that's a good point. There's no intimacy. It's just like, Master. Yeah. And he kisses him, which is a a grotesque betrayal. Mm -hmm. And you might imagine... Jesus just like hauling off and punching the guy yeah. because <laughs> what are you doing? yeah yeah is so slimy uh-huh he's like schmeagle yeah yeah but Jesus responds to him instead friend why are you here I mean he calls him yeah. friend yeah and it shows that there really is a beautiful depth of love right there mm-hmm. and we see this also in a, a less obvious way. In the Psalms, so like Psalm 41, mm-hmm. for example. The, the Psalms, uh, several of them prophesy about Judas's betrayal of Christ. Uh-huh. So Psalm 41, 9 says, Even my bosom friend in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Yeah, so still that friendship. 
Like, yeah, he's my still bosom friend. Yeah, a deep friend. Here's someone who's about to invalidly receive communion at the very first Mass. Yeah, yeah. And then betray Christ. Who's able to go away from the Last Supper, this incredibly intimate meal among friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, forget for a moment about the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah. Forget for the moment that he's divine. This was his friend. Yeah. And he betrayed his friend for a small chunk of change. Mm-hmm. And Jesus in still calling him a bosom friend. Yeah. The, and the pain is, is clear from these Psalms. Mm-hmm. Uh, Psalm 55 talks about the betrayer as his companion and familiar friend. Yeah. And says, we used to hold sweet converse together. Within God's house, we walked in fellowship. So here's why I think it's worth bringing up. Mm-hmm. There is a view in some parts of Protestantism mm-hmm. of, of what's called limited atonement. Basically that Christ doesn't die for all. He just dies for the saints. And so in that view, sometimes, not always, sometimes it'll happen that people will say, well, God hates the sinners. Oh, Like he doesn't just hate the sin. He didn't love these people. He didn't die on the cross for them. Uh-huh. He has no love for them. Gosh, like what a depressing like, it is. train of thought. It is a depressing train of thought. Mm-hmm. And you could never know for sure you're not one of those right. unloved by God. Yeah. And it would create this weird situation in which we're told to love sinners. Yeah, but don't but don't worry but about God it. Because God doesn't. Yeah. And given that our love is only possible through divine charity, which is God's love anyway. Right. Does it doesn't it quite right. line up. Right. Yeah, yeah. But here we just see it's not true. Mm-hmm. If there's one person that it would seem like surely God can't love, yeah, Judas is that guy. Yeah, yeah. But Jesus is just clear Still that he him. loves him and thinks of him as a friend. Mm-hmm. A false friend, a traitorous friend yeah. in some ways, but still a friend. Yeah. So when we betray Christ, which mm-hmm. we do, anytime you have a serious sin, you betray Christ. So this priest I know, Father Mick Kelly, yeah. gives this amazing homily. About how the pieces of silver Judas sold God for uh-huh. are so pitifully small. And we just like stand in shock that this massive betrayal happened for so little. Right. And then he says at the end of it, now what would you betray God for? What would you sell God out for? And if you want to know the answer, look at your last mortal sin. Gosh, dang. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it really now. takes you from that, like, sitting in a place of judgment of Judas to, like, yeah. oh, no. I still look possibly less than that. Right. Yeah. I may not actually be better yeah. than Judas. Yeah. And, of course, that gets back to the discussion in the last section on how we respond to that shame. Right. Do we just throw our hands up or do we say, God, I'm a worse sinner than I realized. Mm-hmm. I need your help big time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mary, take my <laughs> sinfulness because I'm going to need a lot of help here. Yeah. In Lent, especially, we hear this a lot from the pulpit during our homilies that we may listen to in our parishes, but the priests are like, you come to confession. Come to confession before Easter. Why is that the case, especially for this season? And if people are sitting there tempted towards despair, what are ways that we can shift our mindset and walk into the confessional? Yeah, well, why this season? I'd say it's a 40-day period of preparation. Yeah. We want to be able to enter the joy of Easter without having a sort of asterisk there Mm -hmm. saying, oh... I may not be in a spiritual state where I should even be receiving communion right, right. now. Yeah. Or I may have some unresolved wounds mm-hmm. with God yeah. that need to be addressed. Yep. This is a time to be very intentional. Mm-hmm. Have the hard conversations now so you can go into the party 
yeah. on good terms. Yeah, without dragging something behind you. Right, like party. just address the baggage first. Yeah. And then you can move forward in, in freedom and confidence. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's why now. Yeah. That doesn't make confession easy. No. I think it's always helpful to remember a few things. One, on just a very natural level. The priest has heard it all before. Yeah. Stop giving yourself credit. There's only one original sin. Right. <laughs> stole it. I totally stole that from you. <laughs> <laughs> I actually stole it from Elvis Costello. So he, he says there's no such thing as an original sin. Yeah. But since Adam and Eve, like, we pretty quickly got yep. the full list. Covered them all. I mean, murder within a generation. Yep. And so on down the list. Yep. We don't have to talk about the first appearance of every sin in the yep. Bible. But... <laughs> And pretty quickly, you get the sense that we ran out of ways of sinning. Like, we ran yep. out of ideas. And yep. so, our sins are just not that interesting. Mm-hmm. Which is good. Yes. Because it means you can go and confess them. And you might have, like, intense guilt and shame around it. Mm-hmm. But the priest has heard it all before and, and is, stands ready to forgive. Yep. Even more than that. Mm-hmm. Jesus already knows. Like, it isn't like he's going to be like, you did what? <laughs> when did that happen? Right. <laughs> He wasn't asleep when that happened. Right, right. He was there with you. And despite having seen your terrible sin, mm-hmm. despite having seen how many times you might have sinned, yeah. he still loves you, mm-hmm. thinks of you as a friend, friend. Yeah. wants to save you, mm-hmm. wants to make you a great saint, and wants to empower you with grace so you can do things that, by your own strength, you never could. Yeah. Yeah, and he loves us enough to give us a choice to accept that, too. It's not He's not forcing it on us. Right. It's an incredible, powerful invitation mm-hmm. that respects human freedom and also recognizes the limits of our weakness. And all you got to do is be contrite for your sin, yep. go to confession, receive that healing, and allow God to do more in you than you could do by your own strength. So what have we covered in today's episode? Well, Judas is genuinely wicked. Mm -hmm. He does some truly wicked things. He's certainly a sinner. And so are we. Right. We've already imitated Judas by betraying Christ through sin. And we have a choice of whether we're going to betray Christ by denying and ignoring his mercy as well. Exactly. Are we going to imitate Peter in turning back and receiving the mercy of God? Mm -hmm. Or are we going to imitate Judas... And trying to do it on our own, trying to make things right by ourselves, or imitate him by just throwing our hands up in despair. Yeah. But you know, more than that, this is really a story of God's incredible offer of mercy and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. In this case, it was denied. But it's worth remembering, you know, Judas is someone who Jesus is incredibly merciful to, mm-hmm. calling him friend, making him an apostle, and standing always ready to forgive, mm-hmm. even warning him repeatedly yeah. about the consequences of his sin. If Christ is willing to offer mercy to Judas, then what is he willing to offer us? So thanks for joining us for this episode today, Joe. And next week, we'll be coming back and looking at the other half of the Peter-Judas equation. We've already covered how you can despair, and we're going to be covering Peter in our third episode of our Lenten journey. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, let's close with a prayer. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, Father, and to the the Son, and to the Holy Holy Spirit, Spirit, as it was was in the beginning, beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. In the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.